events like those that transpired between our Bible class and our worship service this morning can be disturbing to us emotionally. They can be disruptive to our attention spans. I mean, after all, we're already running behind and probably our, our thoughts are thinking about other things. And in fact, I briefly considered not even having our sermon this morning, just spending some time in prayer, but uh, I appreciated what Philip said in his opening prayer about how happy we are to have this opportunity to be here today, and I think we should never fail to take advantage of that, and regardless of whatever other circumstances are going on around us, I'm happy to have the opportunity to speak to you today. I hope the time we spend here together will be beneficial for us and uh, we will perhaps run through our lesson a little bit faster than we otherwise would have for the sake of our attention spans. I also have to say I appreciate Danny leading singing this morning. Uh, We've had a a sort of uh, crisis lately in that Danny was not supposed to be here today. Last I heard he was supposed to be out of town and of our other regular song leaders, Michael didn't think he would be here and... Uh, Shannon had to work, and then Kelly, as you heard, had to have emergency eye surgery because last Sunday night when he was leading singing, his retina became detached, and he's going to be out of commission laying face down for quite some time. So all that's to say, uh, I was going to lead singing this morning because there was no one else to do it. I picked out those songs, and uh, fortunately, Danny just happened to, to be here and looked over songs he didn't choose and didn't necessarily know one of them as well as he would have liked before he started, but uh, I think it all went well, and I appreciate that. Uh, And on that note, if you're a man here in this congregation who has ever had the inclination to lead singing and think you could do a good job of it or just even had the itch to try it out, come see me. We could use you, and uh, I'll even help get you prepared for all that. It'll be all right. (laughs) In our text that Rock read a few moments ago here in Haggai chapter 2, God through the prophet, effectively has the people look back into the past and see how it came to nothing. I want you to notice that question there in the middle of the third verse, Haggai chapter 2, verse 3. He says, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? How do you see it now? That's a good question for us to ask as we approach a new year. How do you see it now? Look back at 2019. How do you see it now? It probably looks a little bit different than you thought it might at the outset of the year. We can look and see all the pounds that we lost and then probably regained here at the holidays. We can see all of the habits that perhaps we broke that we wanted to, but maybe new bad habits that we've cultivated in their place. We can see the promises that we broke. We can see the hopes and the dreams, but we can also see the disappointments and the sorrows. And in fact, I was thinking of that with Miss Geraldine's episode that unfortunately this church has seen its fair share of sorrow in this calendar year with those being struck with serious illnesses and others who've passed. But we can also ask this question about 2020, this year that's stretching out here before us. How do we see 2020 now? 
as we look out at the outset of this new year, we look at its prospects, what do we see? Do we see doom and gloom? Or do we see hope? Do we see good things to come? Do we see ourselves maybe up here leading singing at some point? Or for an easy example, uh, one of the most pivotal things we have coming up in this year is an election. Some of you are probably serious invest, seriously invested in the outcome of that, one way or the other. Well, how do you see that affecting life? Do you see clouds or do you see sunshine? Do you see despair or do you see hope? How do you see it now? Behavioral scientists have determined that in large measure, we see what we're prepared to see. And this is in large part determined by a neural network known as the reticular activating system. The reticular activating system acts as a sort of gate to sensory information that we take in. So in other words, it helps to filter out things that are unimportant so you can focus only on those things that are important. And as a result, once our senses have been prepared by this system to see things one way, we'll start seeing it that way everywhere. A good example, you've probably all experienced something like this. Let's say you decide to buy a new car, and you've decided on the make and the model and the color. You haven't bought it yet. What happens? You suddenly start seeing that vehicle everywhere. You pass it on the road, you see it in parking lots, you see it in internet advertisements. That could be just because Facebook is reading your thoughts and is targeting you specifically. But you see it on billboards, you see it on television, you see it in newspapers and magazines. What happened? Well, those cars were always there. It's just that now the reticular activating system has prepared you to see them. You're focused on that information, so now where before that just went through as unimportant, it got filtered out, now it passes through as important. The point is that happens in other areas of life too. We see what we are prepared to see. If we're prepared to see doom and gloom in 2020, that's what we'll see. But if, on the other hand, we're prepared to see possibilities and opportunities that stretch out before us, then that's what we'll see. So I want us to ask ourselves the question, how do you see it now this morning? And I want to apply that in three different areas of our life. First of all, how do you see yourself? When you look in the mirror, what sort of person looks back? Do you see someone who is maybe not as capable maybe not as talented as you wish they were? Do you see someone who's weak? Someone who's failed a good bit? Do you see someone who you consider to be relatively worthless? Or on the other hand, do you look in the mirror and see someone who's eager, someone who's optimistic, someone who sees those failures as opportunities, someone who greets every day as a new challenge? What do you see when you look at yourself? You know, sometimes we say things like, oh, I can't do that, and that's, that's just too hard. I'm not good enough to do that. 
Or maybe sometimes we look at things we'd like to change about ourselves and we say, well, you know, I've tried to change that, but that's just the way I am. It's the way the good Lord made me. You're going to have to take it or leave it. But Scripture tells us, in contrast to that attitude we have, that God can actually work drastic, dramatic changes in us if we'll let him. An obvious example is Saul of Tarsus, a legalistic, hard-hearted, zealous Pharisee who God took and molded and shaped to go from breathing out threatenings and slaughters on the church to being the church's greatest missionary, advocate. Someone, instead of that zealous religion of the Pharisees, that legalistic religion, instead became this great apostle of of grace. And the point is, God can do that same thing in our lives, too. But a lot of that depends on ourselves, on what we see. And what I want to challenge us this morning is to see ourselves the way that God sees us. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, this same Paul says something that ought to influence the way that we look at ourselves. He says there that it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Paul is saying, in effect, that we are part of God's investment in the future. We're these bundles of unlimited potential and opportunity that God wants to take and to mold and to shape and to use in this world to accomplish his purpose. So let's not ever go around saying, well, that's just the way I am. You're going to have to accept me, take it or leave it. Because nothing could be further from the truth. God can take us and use us. He can change us. He can utilize us to work his will in our lives if we let him do that. Some years ago, there was a seven-year-old boy who attended a little country schoolhouse in Kansas. One day, a cold, bitterly cold February morning, he and three of his siblings went to the schoolhouse, and they arrived earlier than everyone else. So his oldest brother went to the old pot-belly stove that kept the classroom warm and started to make up a fire for the students who were going to arrive. And he put the wood in and the coal and he reached for the accelerant, the can of kerosene that they held there to start the fire. But unfortunately, someone had accidentally refilled that can with gasoline instead of kerosene. The stove exploded. There was a big fireball. That oldest boy and the seven-year-old boy were enveloped in flames. They made their way outside, they stopped, dropped, rolled, they put the fire out. And somehow, not knowing what else to do with no other adult being there, they staggered two miles back to their house because they knew that their mom and dad would know what to do. The doctor came out to the house and he held out no hope for the oldest boy. He was far too badly burned. And in fact, he passed nine days later. But the little boy had a chance if if infection didn't set in because you see the problem was the lower half of his body was covered in burns his overalls had melted into his legs and infection did set in the doctor advised that they amputate his leg his mother said no let's not do that yet let's wait one more day 
And every day, she said, let's wait one more day, see what happens. And after a couple of weeks, they discovered that his legs were healing up. They wouldn't need to amputate them after all. But he'd certainly never walk again. That little boy resolved that even though he had no feeling in his legs, no motor control over them, he would walk again. Every day, his family changed out his bandages, his dressings. They massaged what was left of his little legs. And on Christmas Eve, the following year, so in other words, nearly two years after that accident, he gave his mother a Christmas present. He walked, unaided, for the first time. Now, most of the time, he still had to have help. He still had to have something to hold on to, and his legs were deformed. They were crooked. He walked lopsided. But through perseverance, through pushing himself to walk more and more, his legs gradually got stronger. And before long, almost miraculously, he started to run. He would grab on to the tail of a milk cow or a donkey to take some weight off his legs and run behind it. And once he started doing that, he discovered that running was actually less painful than walking. And he began to run everywhere just out of the joy of now being able to run. At 12 years old, on a whim, because he loved running so much, he decided to enter a foot race that was held at his school. Now, he was wearing long pants. He was wearing thick canvas-soled shoes. And these other boys weren't 12. They were high schoolers. And they were wearing shorts, and they were wearing spikes for the track. And yet, he beat those older boys. And that changed everything for him. He became a member of his high school track team. He ran track then in college where he earned the nickname the Kansas Flyer. And in 1934 in New York City's Madison Square Garden, this young man who was not expected to survive, whose legs needed to be amputated, who surely would never walk, let alone be able to run, this man, Glenn Cunningham, set a record for the indoor mile, running it in four minutes and eight seconds. At one point, he held seven of the 13 fastest times in the mile ever recorded. In 1936, he even won a silver medal at the Olympics. The point for us this morning is that with God, everyone has that kind of potential that Glenn Cunningham had. God can take even crippled bodies, but more importantly for us, crippled souls, lives that have been shattered, that we think are irreparable, broken, used up beyond repair. And he can take those lives and with them he can change the world. We're never too broken down, too used up, too far beyond hope for him to be able to do something with us. So how does it look to you when you look in the mirror? What do you see? The second question is, how do you see the world? Now, we know how God sees the world. The most famous verse in all of Scripture tells us that God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. 
So God loves the world, and in fact, he sees it as redeemable. He wants to reach out and to save the world. What do you feel when you look at the world? Do you see it the way God sees it? Do you love it? Or do you feel anything at all? One of the factors that I think unfortunately tends to paralyze the church is that we are apathetic. We don't really care that much about the world. Indifference is prevalent. As long as, as, long as I'm secure, as long as I'm comfortable, as long as I'm taken care of, then I don't really have too much concern about anybody else. But God sees a world in need of redemption, and he wants to utilize us to be those channels that he can work through to demonstrate his love to the world so that it can be redeemed. I had this brought home to me personally a few years ago, right about this time of year, actually, when I was working in Austin and I was walking on the drag near the University of Texas campus. And if you've ever been down there, you know that there are a lot of homeless people. There are a lot of beggars there asking for money. And as I passed a group of them, one of them asked me for some. Now, I haven't carried much, if any, cash in years. And so I was able to truthfully tell him, I'm sorry, I don't have any money. And he said, and I'll never forget this, he said, that's all right. Thank you for acknowledging me. And he wished me a happy new year, and I did the same, and I went on my way. Thank you for acknowledging me. And the reason he said that was obviously because most people failed to acknowledge him. They completely dehumanized him, treated, like, treated him like he didn't exist, like he wasn't even there. That's the way so many people in this world do just walking by, isolated in their own little world, probably looking at their smartphone, ignoring what's going on outside of them. And I worry and I wonder how often we as Christians are guilty of that very same thing, of ignoring the world around us, everything that happens outside of our own life or our own family or our own church family. Do we really care about those who are hurting, who are suffering physically, spiritually? Do we really care that there's a world out there that is lost and dying without the gospel? Do we see that? Do we love it the way that God does? What do you see when you look at the world? How do you see it now? Third and finally this morning, how do you see the church of Jesus Christ? You know, back to our text in Haggai chapter 2. God has instructed Haggai to speak to the governor, Zerubbabel, the high priest, Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, and all the people. These people here, Haggai's a prophet after the return from captivity. So they've come back from exile in Babylon. And their purpose here has been to rebuild the city of Jerusalem and in particular to rebuild the temple. So God says to them there in verse number two to speak to them and ask them first this question. How many of you remember this place? How many of you remember the temple before it was destroyed? And while a lot of them were born in Babylon, some of them would have remembered. This was decades after they were taken away, but some of those gray heads there would have been children 
And they could have remembered back when they were little, when the temple was the center of worship and of fellowship, when people gathered together and when sacrifices were offered to God and prayers were made and songs were sung. Those had been exciting times here at God's house. But that's when God asks, how do you see it now? And of course, what they saw then was a pile of rubble. They saw stones there on the ground where the temple used to be. And in response to that, three times God says, be strong. Be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. He says, be strong to all of them. How could they be strong? For I am with you. He goes on to expand on that. We're in a relationship with each other. I've made a covenant with you. My spirit is among you. Don't be afraid. I'm going to shake the heavens. I'm going to shake the earth. I'm going to shake all nations. And I will fill this house with my glory. How do you see the church? When you look around this morning, what do you see? You just see an auditorium that was maybe about 40% as full as you'd like it to be? Or do you see people, God's people, who are full of potential to go out and to do great things for him? Do you see people who are in a covenant relationship with God? Do you see people that God's spirit dwells in? Do you see people through whom God can do great things for his glory? What do you see this morning when you look at your future? Do you see a human being who doesn't have very much potential at all? Or do you see yourself as God sees you? Someone through whom he can do his will and accomplish his work. What do you see when you look at the world? Do you see despair? Do you see destruction? Do you see chaos and hopelessness? Or do you see a world with potential? A world that God loves? A world waiting to be redeemed by his power? What do you see when you look at the church? Do you see in, in this place, in this gathering of God's people, the potential that God has to change the world? All of this matters a great deal. Because as we said at the outset, in large measure, we will see what we are prepared to see. 2020 is stretching out here before us. And the way that we see it, with God's help, is the way it'll be. God's still in control. God is sitting on his throne just as surely as he was there when he spoke to Haggai back in the Old Testament. Nothing is impossible with him. And so he waits for a church of people who are willing and ready to answer his call to accept this challenge and to reach out to a world that's lost and dying without him. A world that needs to hear his message. If you're here this morning and you're without Christ as your Savior, we want to extend the Lord's invitation that 
God can take you no matter how broken and hopeless and despairing you think you are and change you in ways that you never thought possible because he has the power to do that. If you'll respond by putting your faith, your trust in Jesus, repenting, turning to God, being buried in the waters of baptism, have your sins washed away, being added to those people. Maybe you're here this morning and you've been looking at things in this world with man-centered eyes rather than seeing them the way God wants you to see them, the way that he sees them. If that's the case, we want to urge you this morning to make a change and to begin to let him have his way with you. That's his invitation while we stand and while we sing.